Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. My name is Colby Sinusel, and I am the Telecom Services and Communications Infrastructure Analyst here at Cowan. For today's podcast, we have Dave Schaefer, Cogent's Chairman, CEO, and Founder. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate hey, it. Thank you, Colby, for hosting me. I'm really excited to do this because I think you have one of the more interesting backgrounds uh, of people in the telecom industry, and, and also just the founding of Cogent itself, I think, is really interesting. And I'd love to touch on those things first before asking you some more questions as it relates to Cogent today and kind of how you see the world playing out. To start, I guess, you grew up in suburban Maryland and graduated from the University of Maryland when you were just 19 years old with an economics degree. What was that like to be in college at such a young age? I started when I was 12 and finished my PhD, except I did not defend my dissertation. And I was actually only 17 at that time. So I did go to school pretty young. How did that happen? Yeah, so I skipped a couple of grades. And then one of the counselors had me take some tests and I was pretty easily able to skip a few more grades and then actually get into a fair number of college credits. And, uh, you know, they just allowed me to go to college early and that's what I wanted to do. I have to ask, was that like headline news in the local paper? Like, you know, 12 year old boy goes to college. No, not at all. You know, at first applied to you know, some more Ivy League schools and was able to go, but I wasn't comfortable in leaving home at that age, you know, living on my own. So I just stayed at home, took public transportation, went to the University of Maryland and uh, pretty much started in kind of mostly upper level and graduate classes right out of the box. Wow. I, I, I could just imagine being a 19 year old student there and, and looking to my left and seeing you, the 12 year version and, and just being like, this is crazy. It must've been interesting from your perspective, just to be with all those older kids. I looked at it as kind of like a job. I uh, got up in the morning and got on the bus and was there for my eight o'clock classes and typically came home in the evening and couple of nights a week, I actually took evening class, so I didn't get home until around 11 o'clock, and you know, it was just a full-time job. Wow. So what were you intending to do with your degree? And, and, and you mentioned PhD, and you never ended up defending it. What, what were you intending, and what ultimately did happen? So I was pretty eclectic in the things that I studied. Actually, my undergraduate uh, work was in physics and got into the PhD program at Maryland in part because they were actually going to expel me as an undergrad because Maryland had a unique program. As an undergrad state resident, I paid $149 a semester and could take an unlimited number of classes. And uh, you know, normal full-time load was generally 15 credit hours a semester. And I was taking about 40 a semester for my $349. And I actually got to meet the dean 
and the president of the college, and they told me that I could not do what I was doing because as an undergraduate, they also had a program that allowed you to take graduate courses, which were at the time generally about $150 a credit hour. But as long as you didn't matriculate to graduate school, you were fine. And they said, well, you're scamming the system and you shouldn't be here. And, you know, the compromise was I would graduate and get into a graduate program. And I actually thought I was going to teach. That never happened. So your family owned uh, a taxi business. And after graduating from Maryland, you went to work for the family business. You know, why did that happen? And, and, and how long did you do that? Yeah, so it was actually a long time. And when I went there, it was a bit of a turnaround situation. It was actually the last thing I wanted to do. My dad was a cab driver originally, had a small cab company, 49 cars, and ran it out of a one-bay gas station and found himself nearly a million dollars in the hole, which was far more money than he could have ever made. And, you know, was kind of in a tough financial spot. Ultimately, myself and my two brothers joined him. And that first business was really a turnaround where we changed the business model and refocused on, you know, trying to become profitable. And within about three years, we had grown that business to just over 2,000 cabs in DC and really kind of hit a wall. We controlled about a third of the market and, you know, living in the suburbs in, you know, the late 70s in an urban market, uh, it just wasn't politically practical to have more than that market share. So, you know, while I continued to run that business, I had the opportunity to start some other businesses tangentially uh, while still running the cab business. Talk about those tangential businesses and how they got you from the cab business ultimately into the telecom business. Yes. As the cab business matured and became very profitable pretty quickly, the first extension was to gain control of the rest our industry to two-thirds that we did not control indirectly. And the way we did that is we purchased the real estate that our competitors sat on as a lever point. And the real estate on its own tended to be a good investment because they tended to be land-rich, building-poor development sites, what are now known as covered land plays in in the urban core because cab companies wanted to be close to downtown. And some of the real estate deals turned out to be very, very successful, right place, right time. And ultimately with my two brothers as partners, I did a total of 47 deals. And then subsequent to that, uh, as I kind of veered off on my own, I've done about another 40 on my own. And then I guess the second business that was a property and casualty underwriting business. So 
for a taxicab operator, the large single expense is insurance. And DC had not updated insurance laws since 1937. I was able to start from scratch an insurance business. Wow. And then that branched out to do couriers and ambulances and limousines, but ultimately was too thinly catalyzed to go beyond just the tri-state Maryland, D.C., Virginia market, kind of hit the ball in terms of size. You know, it ultimately probably insured five, 6,000 vehicles. And then uh, from that, my next business actually did have my entry into communications. So cab systems uh, needed dispatch radios. At the time, Motorola was in the process of transitioning from a company distributed model to a dealer model. I received a dealership and began selling two-way radios and uh, to other industries. And through that, got involved in developing a number of SMR systems around the country uh, that I constructed, loaded, and then eventually sold to what became Nextel in a series of intermediate transactions. And uh, I did a total about 170 channels of SMUR and 18 discrete systems in various markets. And I actually did that without my brothers as partners because they didn't really have an interest in that you know, business. And you know, from that, I uh, got a good understanding of the fundamentals of communications and had the ability to uh, branch out into some other communications businesses. When my dad ultimately retired, I took that as an opportunity to quote unquote, also retire and leave the cab business because I never particularly liked that business. It was very lucrative, but I didn't like it. So uh, I left and uh, you know had made some money on both real estate and through the SMR uh, roll up, and then uh, started a paging carrier that I developed uh, down the East Coast. Ultimately, was approached about taking that company public, chose not to, and I actually broke the company into two pieces and sold it in halves to two different public paging companies when there still was a vibrant paging industry. And then actually from that had planned to be a C-band in the first round of PCS auctions mm. in, you know, kind of mid nineties. I had had my paging business under contract, had closed on the sale and was looking to use the, uh, D disadvantaged entity credits to be a C band. I went through that process, understood the bidding rules, and quickly became convinced that the 
other disadvantaged entities were really not disadvantaged entities, but rather were backed by, you know, Bell Atlantic or 9X, the, the large telcos, and they were really just effectively fronts for those businesses. And I was going to be quickly outgunned in those auctions. So I realized that there was an ancillary business opportunity in that uh, the spectrum that the government was selling was actually occupied by fixed microwave operators who tended to be utilities, railroads, and pipelines, who had no understanding of what to do with that spectrum or how to deal with the auction, because the auction had a fair amount of structural challenges. They were breaking the bands up differently for PCS than they were for fixed microwave. There were MSA and BSA overlays that didn't match the geographic footprints. And the old systems were all analog and the new systems had to be digital. And there was no way to marry those three different constraints together and come to a solution. So I created a business that went to those operators, basically had them assign their rights to Spectrum to me in exchange for uh, giving them a brand new communication system. Some cases it was microwave, some cases it was fiber. And that business ultimately grew fairly large. I raised over three and a half billion dollars capital for that business. I brought on an outside CEO, was actually the former CEO of 9X, uh, prior to the Bell Atlantic merger and ended up raising public debt, tried to raise public equity, but wrong place, wrong time, and then ultimately sold my position in that company uh, and then realized that the opportunity to create a telecom company from the ground up solely focused on the internet would give me a structural advantage over other players. That was the genesis of the business plan for coaching. What year is this roughly that we're talking about? I, I think it's the late 90s. So your, your timing is, is, is good in terms of where the, the, mar the telecom market is hot. And I, and I referenced earlier some comments that I, I had read that you had heard from Michael Armstrong. And also I mentioned David Eisenberg and the rise of the stupid network. I mean, what was the thesis here when you started thinking about Cogent? Yeah, so it's interesting. Of the seven companies that I've effectively founded, Cogent is the only one that is still executing business plan that I originally envisioned. Almost in every other case, there are a number of mid-course corrections. And there was a correction at Cogent, but not to change the business plan. And the genesis of the business plan was simple. One, that telecom is a commodity, and therefore you had to be the lowest cost producer. Two, you needed to be selective in where you deployed your network because you are overbuilding existing networks, which are natural monopolies. Three, telecom is an industry where 
marginal cost is always below average cost. There's never a concept of a backward bending supply curve. So you had to get big quickly. Fourth, the application that was going to drive bandwidth demand was the internet. It was the internet because the internet was application agnostic, it was ubiquitous, and it was inexpensive. And then finally, you needed to have a compelling value proposition in order to make your cost of revenue acquisition low enough to be NPV positive. Those were kind of the five basic pillars of the cogent business plan. And I literally came into my office on a Saturday afternoon in August of 99, wrote the business plan one afternoon. And then uh, Monday morning, I actually reached out to a 24-year-old analyst who had been staffed at Morgan Stanley on the previous company's IPO roadshow and asked him if he wanted to work in a startup. He did, and he brought another analyst with him who was 22. And the three of us then set out and actually within a couple of months raised $500 million of capital, which gave us the foundation. And ultimately we told investors that we were going to build a network by buying dark fiber IRUs from other providers, deploy uh, IP over DWDM, use Ethernet, and purpose it solely for the internet and connect it to either skyscrapers or data centers. Sounds a lot like Cogent. And we would need $2 billion. We were lucky. There were three of us in an office and a half a billion dollars of capital, and we couldn't spend it fast enough. The crash occurred, and we still had about $455 million unspent. And we sat down with the investors and really laid out three options, liquidation and dividending it out the capital. Secondly, we could uh, go ahead and plow forward and build the network, but only if the current 10 investors committed another $1.5 billion because without that capital, we couldn't get the network built. Or we proposed a third plan, which was to take our pool of capital, treat it as a blind pool and buy distressed assets. So a common misconception of Cogent was somehow was founded to take advantage of the telecom meltdown. That's actually not correct. It was founded to take advantage of the internet. And then the telecom meltdown became a means to an end. So your timing is, is everything here. So when you raise the capital, you, you got VC money. I think you also got a pretty large credit line from Cisco, which I think was the predominant source of your capital and you were intending to go and, and, and build a network but timing being at what it was when you were ready to deploy the market had melted down and you now had to make some decisions that you hadn't initially intended when you built that business plan you obviously in, chose option three 
and you rolled up uh, a bunch of companies uh, that ultimately founded or formed Cogent. How many companies did you ultimately acquire? And, and there's two in particular I'd love to hear the kind of the backstory on. One is Allied Riser, because I just think it's really interesting what happened there. And the other one is PSI Net. Can you kind of talk about what happened there and, and just ultimately what had to happen to create code? Yeah. So uh, the one thing I may slightly differ on is even though we acquired companies, we were really acquiring assets of those companies yeah. that we then dismantled and reassembled into the cogent business plan. So between April of 01 and December of 04, we did serious due diligence on 121 acquisition targets. We bid on 19 of those and were successful in buying 13, two of which you've mentioned, Allied Riser and PSINet. And I'll take them in alphabetical order. Let's start with Allied Riser. I had actually met the three previous CEOs of Allied Riser. Uh, I also, in raising capital for Cogent and having a portion of the business focused on large buildings, what were known as BLEX at the time, I remember an investor pulling out a Goldman Sachs research paper on Allied Riser and said, you're late to the party. These guys already beat you. And then I proceeded to explain how our business was different. So uh, I was very aware of Allied Riser. They had recently hired a fourth CEO, former head of strategy at GTE, Jerry Dinsmore. Jerry actually left uh, GTE to go work at a DSL play out of uh, Denver that failed very quickly within a month or two of his arrival. He then was recruited to come turn around. Allied Riser had been on the job a couple of months, looked at that business and realized it was not salvageable. He put out a press release saying he was going to explore options. I read it. I literally picked up the phone, called him up and asked him if I could come down and talk to him. And, uh, you know, I flew down to Dallas. Jerry was a chain smoker and <laughs> okay. literally stood for almost eight hours in front of 1700 Pacific, a big tall skyscraper in downtown uh, Dallas that was his headquarters because he couldn't smoke inside and he wanted to smoke during the whole meeting. So we did it out on the sidewalk. I listened to his concerns. I realized his business model was flawed. He had about 5.4 million in direct cost of goods sold and a revenue run rate of about four and a half million dollars. So he was gross margin negative. He was buying local loops to then put a mux in the basement of the building 
and then sell a complete suite of telecommunication services and IT integration, which were not profitable and subscale. But he did have uh, some significant assets. He had 900 buildings that he had distribution rights in. He built infrastructure in those buildings for distribution. And he actually had a fair amount of cash on the balance sheet. He had uh, basically 145 million of cash and a $150 million convert. And the bondholders had been suing for liquidation, hoping that they had bought the bonds at distress and would get paid out close to par. We came along with a plan that avoided bankruptcy. We did a reverse triangular merger into Allied Riser. We took our current shareholders and made them a super class of preferred, cramming down the public shareholders and uh, the insiders at Allied Riser, which included Sam Zell. We then terminated the customers. We terminated all but two of the 971 employees at the company. Jeez. We then stripped the equipment out of the company <laughs> and repurposed a part of it in our architecture. We ultimately were sued by the bondholders. Uh, that case went first to Delaware Chancery, where we prevailed. It then went to Dallas bankruptcy where we prevailed and it was ultimately appealed to Delaware Supreme Court, which also upheld our right to buy the company. Once we had bought the company, we repurchased $140 million of the convert from the holders at a deep discount and repurposed those assets into cogent. And, you know, I'll never forget Sam Zell called me on the phone, only time I've ever talked to him. And he was really foul mouthed. He was yelling at me. And he's, <laughs> you know, what did you do to me? And I listened to him. And at the end, when he finished talking, I said, Sam, I didn't do anything to you. You wouldn't have done to me. He was silent from me. He says, that's right. Thank you. And he hung up on me. So that was the <laughs> Sam Zell story. And then uh, PSI Net was a slightly different situation. PSI Net was the first commercial internet provider. It was primarily a roll up of hosting and DSL companies. Uh, Pete Trader, who had been the founding CEO and then chairman, was a bit of a mercurial guy. The company had raised uh, a significant amount of capital, roughly 4.2 billion of debt uh, in secured and unsecured debt, and was in bankruptcy, had 300 million of cash on the balance sheet, but was burning 10 million a month in bankruptcy. So it was administratively insolvent, showing that the business was not viable. 
they had uh, shopped the business for over a year. Uh, there were a couple of false starts and there was a pretty vigorous fight going on between the secured and unsecured creditors committees. Meanwhile, the company was burning $10 million a month, you know, $300,000 a day. And we came up with a plan to stop the burn, to unify the creditors classes, and to, again, terminate the customers, terminate the various unprofitable leases, terminate the vast majority of the employees, and uh, then repurpose, again, a subset of those assets in the cogent and build the $2 billion network we envisioned with the piece parts of these and the other 11 acquisitions that we did. And you ended up spending how much money total for those acquisitions? So in total, we spent uh, $60 million and we net acquired 115 million of cash. We acquired 400 million of preferences and 500 million of acquired debt. And we were able to structure those transactions in a way that effectively liquidated the preferences and debt. We crammed them down and emerged with the assets, but we did burn up the 115 million of cash. I think for most people who are probably listening to this, they did not appreciate the history uh, of both yourself and of Cogent. It's, 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 I think, one of the most fascinating stories in, in, in the telecom industry. At this point, I want to pivot. I want to start talking a bit more now about the, the future of, of Cogent and how you think about some aspects. The first area I want to talk about is, is peering. So over the years, you've gotten into some pretty contentious peering disputes with other telecom carriers. Some of them are notorious. Is today's peering model outdated? Uh, it's evolving. I'm not sure outdated would be the right word. So let's go back. What the internet is, is an amalgamation of about 55,000 networks. Those networks interconnect to one another. There are three methods of interconnection. The most common one is the one we market, which is transit. A global tier one provider sells upstream to smaller networks. We sell to 7,500 networks more than anyone else access network. And most traffic today goes through transit. The second method is settlement-free peering. That is large global backbones of roughly equal size, whether measured by traffic, by geography, or points of presence, uh, end up exchanging traffic without exchanging money. So it's a bill and keep model from the old telco world where the carrier bills its customer and exchanges traffic at no charge with the counterparty. The third model, which began in the probably 
2012-2013 period was the advent of paid peer. It was the idea of selling connectivity, not to the internet, but just to one network, typically by an access monopoly. And that tended to be not healthy for the internet for a few reasons. It was more expensive, it was harder to manage, and all of the market power resided with the monopolist. So when Cogent built its business, the biggest risk in our business was could we get peering with the correct parties we needed to peer with? And initially we were known as, and this is a you know, derogatory term, but peering horse. We peered with almost anyone. We at peak had 869 settlement free peers because it lowered our cost of buying transit. And we supplemented that with transit. As our traffic volumes increased, we gained peering with other players. With the acquisition of PSINET, which was the first internet provider and was a tier one, we kind of got into that original club. There was originally eight tier one players. We ultimately bought three of the eight. Not all of the other members of that club appreciated our entry into it and the way in which we were gaining scale, which was by lowering price. When we started, the average price per megabit of bulk connectivity in a data center was $300 a meg. That had actually come down from $3,000 two years earlier. We came to market at $10 a meg. Today, we're at about $0.20 cents a meg. And that has allowed us to become the second biggest player in the market. The other players did not like what we were doing. So the tool they used to combat us was to de-peer us. Those were the nature of the seven major public peering disputes that we had. Now, conversely, we de-peered 840 networks that never met our criteria in the first place, but were advantageous for us to peer with when we did not have the connectivity. We ultimately sold almost all of them at a deep discount. Today have great relationships with virtually all of them. You know, to the question of is the peering model broken? That I think is more of a political question than an economic question. You know, the internet works for three reasons. One, it's ubiquitous. It can overlay anything. Two, it's application agnostic. So you can put any application you can imagine onto it. Some will fail, some will succeed. And then third, it is very deflationary. It drives down pricing. And what's happened is all of the legacy providers have networks that are not able to capture the advances in technology as effectively as our network has. 
And as a result, their capital intensity is higher, even though they're to larger scale, and their margins are lower. Their answer is, well, the internet is broken, so therefore we can't build a backbone and create a peering regime. In fact, most local access networks today just buy transit. There are still some like AT&T and Verizon you know, that are in the market, but have de minimis market share at this point. And, you know, I think the peering model makes sense because the product that you sell when a customer buys internet connectivity are interface routed bit miles connected to other networks. Anybody can build the route mile, the routing, the transport, even the interface, but that interconnection can be challenging. And what has happened as the number of players has shrunk, as the internet has become more globalized, almost all of the new entrants buy transit. And what that does is creates a two-sided market for the larger players. And today, 70% of our traffic results in us getting paid by both the sender and the receiver stays on the coaching network. Now, it obviously can't go to 100% because if it was our 100%, there'd be no other backbone and coaching would be the only backbone globally. And that's not realistic. But we can use that to further drive down prices and create this virtuous cycle. So I think peering has a place, but ultimately transit has eclipsed peering as a superior way for most networks to connect to the rest of the world. You, you've mentioned price and, and how pricing is deflationary. IP transit pricing goes down roughly 20, 25% every year. Is that sustainable going forward? The answer is yes. I've often sat down with CEOs of very large telcos who say they don't envy the business we're in. They don't understand how we could be in it. And usually they have given up on that business. And in producing those interface route of bit miles, there are two variable inputs. The cost of wave division multiplexing transport and the cost of optically interface routing. Those two costs have been on a steep decline curve, routing for 30 plus years at about 40% a year, wave division multiplexing for 35 years at closer to 80% per year. Compare that to Moore's law that declines at 55% per year on a blended basis, we're about in the same place. However, we're much further away from the laws of physics becoming a constraint. So the input costs are going to keep falling. So that's the first reason prices fall. The second is that the market is still sufficiently competitive that pricing moves market share. No one has monopoly power. As a result, Prices will keep falling at about 23% a year. Most players who compete with Cogent are actually losing money 
on the business that we make money on because they're diversified companies with other revenue streams. It's our specialization that's allowed us to become profitable where others haven't. I've talked about that with uh, with investors before. And actually, I've, I've, I've talked to other companies about that, about the specialization. In fact, Dan Caruso, uh, the former CEO of Zayo, used to always reference Cogent. So I'll give him credit for this. But he'd say, you know, why is someone like Cogent, who's so small, so successful in what they do going up against such big companies? And, and he would reference uh, the, 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 the focus, the specialization in terms of just being maniacally focused uh, on this one thing. We're, we're running out of time and I, I have one more topic or conversation, then we're gonna go into what I refer to as the lightning round, which I'll explain to you in a moment. But the qu- last question I really have is, you know, and I've asked you this before, which is, you know, your businesses, you focus on IP transit. We didn't talk too much about it, but you also focus on corporate broadband. Is, is the market TAM big enough to sustain Cogent as a standalone company for the foreseeable future? Is, is there enough growth for you to go after for that to occur? Or do you envision a future at some point where either one of two things has to happen? You either have to further broaden the product set, and you've done that a little bit over the years. You've gotten into VPN, or you, you have to merge or become a part of a broader or bigger organization. Just wondering how you think about that. Yeah. So, you know, a, a good business has two attributes, no matter what the industry is. It organically grows and it produces cash at the same time. Amazingly, very few public companies actually check those two boxes. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I'm not just talking in telecom. I'm talking about in all industries. So we start with the fact that we have a good business. So we are self-sufficient. We are producing cash, growing that cash flow, and growing the business. So there's no need to do anything. I would actually argue there are four paths forward. One is stay independent, doing what we're doing. And I'll answer your TAM question in a moment. The second would be to broaden the product set. That would, to use the words of one of our investors, Peter Lynch, diversify our business and take a good business and make it a bad business. You know, I hope, as I've learned in my life, one of them is I don't want to work harder to make less money. My goal in life is always to work less and make more. (laughs) The third option would be for us to go out and acquire other businesses that doesn't make a lot of sense either based on the fact we don't have a lot of core competency in those other areas. And many of those businesses have challenges that are maybe insurmountable. And then the final one is, do we sell? And as a public company, that's something we always have to consider. Listen, I own 10% of the company, but my partners, the public shareholders own 90% of it. So I'm always going to listen to any offer and you know, respond appropriately. Now to the TAM question, we have two addressable markets in our net centric business, the TAM in dollars has been flat at $1.5 billion. We today only have about 14% of that TAM we can gain market share and continue to grow in that TAM. The TAM is not gonna grow, 
prices will fall, volumes will go up, and we will gain market share. In our corporate business, we're surgical about our market segment. We don't operate outside of the US and Canada. We have about 11% of the multi-tenant office space on that with a very surgically chosen number of buildings, about 1,800. The total broadband market is about $9 billion for businesses. We're at 11% of it on that. And we can serve about another 45% of the market through our off-net relationships. Today, we have about 25% penetration in our footprint. We probably have a decade more of growth ahead of us uh, before we start to bump up against our TAM. And our margins will naturally grow as our scale grows. We also sell a second product. It's about 17% of revenues. It's a virtual private network product. That market at one time was a $45 billion market. Today it's about a $32, $33 billion market. And it's heading to five because of the MPLS replacement cycle. But we can also serve 9% of that market on net and another 45% off net. So in total, we have this called $14 billion TAM, and we're about a $600 million company. So we've got a lot of growth opportunity ahead of us. And you know, for that reason, you know, just increasing our dividend may be the best answer for the foreseeable future. We're at the end of our uh, conversation, and, and we've now approached the lightning round. And I'm going to ask you three questions. I won't follow up on them but I'd like you to keep your responses to less than 30 seconds. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So you talked about wanting to work less, but my question is, do you plan on working for the rest of your life? I doubt it. You know, listen, as companies get bigger, your job gets easier. You can delegate more. I enjoy my work. I'm in good health. I plan to keep working for the foreseeable future, but that's not eternity. You mentioned you're in good health, which is great to hear, but how many Diet Cokes have you already had so far today? Probably about 15. I've had a busy day. Okay, we need to talk about that, but that's a separate conversation. And then lastly, what hobbies do you have outside of work? You know, I'm a pretty avid reader. I probably you know, try to read four or five books a week if I get a chance. And Four or five books a week. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, I don't watch much TV. I work a lot. And that's kind of my life. Well, with that, uh, we've all now heard from the, uh, the most interesting Dave Schaefer. Uh, Dave, thank you so much uh, for, for being here with us. Super appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.